KBOO Community Radio is a proud co-sponsor of Challenging the Both Sides Narrative, Difference Between Fascist and Antifa Movements in the Trump Era, on Thursday, April 4th from 7 to 9 p.m. at Cider Riot in Portland. Challenging the Both Sides Narrative is a talk by Dr. Stanislav Vysotsky. This talk will provide an overview of contemporary fascist and anti-fascist movements with a focus on the key differences between them. Again, that's Challenging the Both Sides Narrative, Difference Between Fascist and Antifa Movements in the Trump Era, on Thursday, April 4th from 7 to 9 p.m. at Cider Riot, 807 Northeast Cooch Street in Portland. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the home page under Community Events. KBOO Community Radio starts our spring membership drive starting April 8th. And before that, we'd love to hear from you directly about why you support KBOO. My name is Mo, a KBOO volunteer, and I support KBOO because I grew up with KBOO. It's part of my life, and I feel having a community outlet like KBOO is so important because it creates a more vibrant community and a place where different ideas are not only heard but honored. Why do you support KBOO? Call us and let us know at 503 231 8032 extension 302 to leave a voicemail or tag us with your support on your social media posts and thank you for supporting KBOO. KPFK Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles. This is Rising Up with Sonali and I'm your host Sonali Kolhatkar. We're online at risingupwithsonali.com. In today's news headlines, news reports have emerged about the extensive length of the special counsel's report on election 2016 wrongdoing. The New York Times on Thursday morning cited named sources from the Justice Department confirming that Robert Mueller's report is more than 300 pages long, the length akin to that of an average book, which calls into question the succinct four-page summary made public by Attorney General William Barr. Meanwhile, nine House Republicans are calling on California Representative Adam Schiff to resign as chair of the House Intelligence Committee for daring to claim that there is evidence of President Donald Trump colluding with Russia. Representative Mike Conaway of Texas wrote a letter that he read out loud saying, The findings of the special counsel conclusively refute your past and present exertions. This despite not having seen the entire report. Acting Interior Secretary David Bernhardt is facing questioning from the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee on Thursday, ahead of a confirmation vote to make his position permanent. The Democrats on the committee are calling into question Bernhardt's recent past as an oil industry lobbyist. As Interior Secretary, Bernhardt oversees hundreds of millions of acres of public land and coastlines. He would be replacing Ryan Zinke, who resigned in disgrace over ethics scandals. During his committee hearing on Thursday, a woman in the audience sitting behind Bernhardt 
quietly donned a green monster mask, which activists and environmental organizations are identifying as a swamp monster, perhaps a statement about the influence of industry lobbyists in government. President Trump had promised to drain the swamp as a candidate, but has only filled the swamp with as many business insiders as possible. Here's Democratic Senator Ron Wyden questioning Bernhardt. I want to go into this conflict issue a bit more with the remainder of my time. Mr. Bernhard, I'm not claiming that you are big oil's guy. The big oil lobbyists are making that claim. Your former clients in the oil and gas industry have been caught on tape crowing about how you're their guy at Interior. That's Senator Ron Wyden questioning Acting Interior Secretary David Bernhardt on Thursday morning at a committee hearing. A federal judge in Washington, D.C. has blocked work requirements for Medicaid recipients in Kentucky and Arkansas. Both those states are headed by Republicans who have tried to reshape the Medicaid program as per Trump's vision. In the case of Kentucky, Judge James E. Boasberg slammed the Department of Health and Human Services for the, quote, arbitrary and capricious work requirements and also criticized the department for assuming that the Medicaid law enacted by Congress allowed the HHS secretary to feel, quote, so unconstrained, nor that the states are so armed to refashion the program Congress designed in any way they choose. In the case of Arkansas, the judge's decision, according to the Washington Post, strips away the federal basis on which that state added work requirements last June that apply to more than 115,000 poor and working-class Arkansans under a part of Medicaid known as Arkansas Works. There are half a dozen states where Medicaid work requirements have been proposed and the judge's decision could have an impact on those. President Trump, in a brief tweet early Thursday morning, decided seemingly unilaterally that Empire actor Jussie Smollett ought not to have been exonerated by prosecutors in Chicago over an alleged faked hate crime. Trump tweeted FBI and DOJ to review the outrageous Jussie Smollett case in Chicago. Without a hint of irony, he then added, it is an embarrassment to our nation. Meanwhile, an executive with the social media platform Twitter made an announcement on Wednesday in an onstage interview with the Washington Post about hateful content. Vijaya Gade, Twitter's head of legal, policy and trust, was asked why those of President Trump's tweets, violating the company's guidelines against inappropriate content, are allowed to remain online. Here is part of the exchange. Doesn't that mean that Trump gets total immunity for whatever he says, no matter how hurtful it is, or other public figures? And, and that's not the case. There is absolutely a line uh, of a type of content. Um, an example would be a direct violent threat against an individual that we wouldn't leave on the platform um, because of the danger that it poses to that individual. But there are other types of content that we believe have um, are newsworthy or in the public interest that people may want to have a conversation around. But today, when we leave that content on the platform, there's no context around that. And it just lives on Twitter and people can see it and they just assume that that's the type of content or behavior that's allowed by our rules. Even though your rules say no bullying. Exactly. So uh, one of the things we're working really closely on uh, with our product and engineering folks is how can we label that? This gets back to part of our early conversation. How can we put some context around it so people are aware that that content is actually a violation of our rules and it's serving a particular purpose in remaining on the platform? So you're literally labeling a tweet saying this tweet is bullying but we're going to show it to you anyway. 
That's Vijaya Gade, Twitter's head of legal policy and trust, in a Washington Post interview on Wednesday explaining how Twitter was hoping to label President Trump's bullying tweets without deleting them, as is done with other inappropriate tweets. Facebook on Wednesday announced that it would begin banning content that it deemed white supremacist and white nationalist. The social media platform was responding to criticism that its earliest set of internal rules continued to allow racist content to flourish and proliferate. In a Facebook post, the multi-billion dollar company explained that, quote, our conversations with members of civil society and academics who are experts in race relations around the world have confirmed that white nationalism and white separatism cannot be meaningfully separated from white supremacy and organized hate groups. The recent massacre of 50 Muslims in Christchurch, New Zealand, highlighted the use of Facebook as a platform for hate when videos of the shooting continued to be shared widely. Civil rights groups praised Facebook's decision but said that more needed to be done. The social media giant also faces other challenges. On Thursday, the Department of Housing and Urban Development charged Facebook with housing discrimination on the basis of its ad-targeting system. According to Associated Press, Facebook is allowing advertisers to exclude people based on their neighborhood by drawing a red line around those neighborhoods on a map and giving advertisers the option of showing ads only to men or only to women. Additionally, HUD, which is pursuing civil charges and potential monetary awards that could run into the millions, said that Facebook's ad platform is encouraging, enabling, and causing housing discrimination because it allows advertisers to exclude people who they don't want to see their ads. Ricardo Rosseo, the governor of Puerto Rico, is so angry with President Trump and his desire to strip the hurricane-hit island of federal funding that he threatened to punch the president. Rosseo, in an interview on CNN, said, if the bully gets close, I'll punch the bully in the mouth. It would be a mistake to confuse courtesy with courage. The governor has been trying hard to meet with Trump in person, but the president has been actively avoiding him. According to CNN, the governor's aides said that during a tense encounter at the White House on Wednesday, they were warned by senior White House officials that representatives for the U.S. territory were pushing too hard to arrange a meeting aimed at discussing the island's dire situation with the president. A federal jury on Wednesday ended a long, drawn-out case over Monsanto's responsibility in causing the cancer of a 70-year-old man named Edwin Hardiman. The six-person jury delivered its verdict, saying the pesticide manufacturer should be held liable for not putting a cancer warning on its Roundup-ready weed killer and has awarded Mr. Hardiman $80 million in damages. The case is a momentous victory against Monsanto, which for years has been able to stave off legal responsibility for its damaging and toxic products. Hardiman suffers from non-Hodgkin's lymphoma after having used Roundup Ready for years. And that does it for our headlines today. We'll be back with the rest of the show after this break.
KPFK Pacifica Radio. This is Rising Up with Sonali and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on Pacifica Radio stations and affiliates nationwide. The Justice Department earlier this week announced that it will seek to overturn the entire Affordable Care Act, President Obama's signature health care bill that Republicans have waged war against for years. In a court filing on Monday, in a case pending at the Federal Court of Appeals in New Orleans, DOJ attorneys asserted that a lower court ruling in Texas last December invalidating the entire law should be upheld. According to the Washington Post, if the Justice Department's position prevails, it would potentially eliminate health care for millions of people and cause disruption across the U.S. health care system, from removing no-charge preventative services for older Americans on Medicare to voiding the expansion of Medicaid in most states. Democrats welcomed the about-face, girding themselves to defend the ACA, which remains popular. We turn to Paul Song, a board-certified radiation oncologist, co-chair of the Campaign for Healthy California. He's also on the Board of Physicians for a National Health Program, and he's our healthcare correspondent. Welcome back, Paul. Always great to be back. So why do you think the Trump administration did this? We are now seeing reports that there has basically been an internal battle within the White House and those seeking to overturn the entire ACA uh, basically prevailed with Trump. And he has now decided it's a good idea to get rid of the entire act. Well, from what I heard, as you mentioned, there was this internal battle, but I think it was really led by uh, Mick Mulvaney, his chief of staff, as well as several other uh, hardline um, people in his administration that have really uh, given, I think, the Democrats a reprieve from the Mueller report. So, um, you know, the Democrats were obviously reeling from the findings or the lack of findings. And uh, just when it looked like things were starting to become dire, um, this news came out. Uh, And what's really surprising about this is um, the more uh, people are learning about it is that within the administration, the Health and Human Services Secretary, uh, Azar, as well as um, the Attorney General Barr themsel- himself were both opposed to uh, what the Trump administration has wanted to do. Um, and, and given that in the midterm elections, the number one uh, Google term prior to the actual midterms the day before was healthcare. Uh, I believe that um, this is an issue that is actually going to come back to help Democrats at a time where they were really starting to feel somewhat depleted and uh, depressed because of the Mueller report. So the attacks on Obamacare are sort of an old-fashioned approach by the GOP, right? I mean, it's kind of passe now for the GOP to continue uh, to harp on this. And I'm wondering if the party is united with Trump, because it seems as though Trump has made a political calculation that uh, attacking Obamacare would benefit his re-election efforts. Well, it's not clear because Kevin McCarthy, the Senate minority leader yesterday, uh, cautioned against going down this route. Uh, His district has certainly benefited as much as any district in in California in terms of the number of people that have gotten health care, either through the Medicaid expansion or through uh, premium subsidy. Uh, so I think that um, this is this is going to be a big, big issue internally. Um, what was really telling is that uh, not only are they trying to support the Texas Ater- Attorney General in, in, in this lawsuit that really was trying to just uh, dismantle the pre- 
pre-existing condition component. The Trump administration is taking one step further to basically say, throw the whole ACA out. Uh, but, but like before, there is no replacement plan in place. And that's where I think uh, Health and Human Service Secretary Azar is saying, before you do this, what are you going to replace it with? Uh, because I think he recognizes that this would be a big disaster. So let's talk about specifically the Texas case. Last December, uh, a judge ruled in Texas uh, specifically around the pre-existing conditions aspect of it. This is basically where insurance companies, the Obamacare, one of the, one of the best things about Obamacare was that it did away with um, allowing uh, health insurance companies to discriminate against people based on so-called pre-existing conditions. Any health care issues that they already had um, could now not be used to raise premiums or deny treatment. Um, it was a very popular part of the ACA because it seems, you know, it doesn't matter what side of the political spectrum you're on, it's, it seems to make sense to not allow that. And that was the part that a Texas judge invalidated. Where does that aspect of the ACA stand right now? Well, so that was a, a Texas judge invalidated it, but then when it went up to a higher court ruling, um, that was overturned. Uh, but that is what is being uh, appealed right now. Uh, and what's so unprecedented about the Justice Department uh, basically taking the side of a plaintiff to overturn an existing law in the United States. Um, and, and again, that was the limited scope of that bill. And, and, and make no um, there's no question about that removing that protection would be disastrous. But what the Trump administration is asking for is one step further, not only removing the protections of uh, against pre-existing uh, condition discrimination, but in throwing out the entire bill entirely, which includes uh, taking away the cap on um, lifetime uh, de deductions and things of that nature that so many people have benefited from. Mm. And we know that the Trump administration had been trying to um, sort of mess with Medicaid, pushing Republican legislatures around the country and states around the country to begin imposing work requirements on Medicaid programs. And we also just heard on Thursday, or really Wednesday, I believe it was, that a judge um, invalidated work requirements in states, uh, in two states, Arkansas and Kentucky, um, saying that that was not what Congress's intention was for the Medicaid program. Um, but uh, Obamacare allowed the expansion of Medicaid. Uh, is there a link between the Trump administration's work uh, pushing for work requirements under Medicaid and the Medicaid expansion under Obamacare? Uh, obviously, there is some political um, uh, retribution for that. But I think what's ironic about the Medicaid work uh, requirement that they're trying to push is particularly in the red states, the majority of people who are actually uh, on Medicaid are working. Many of them in, in, uh, are working one or two jobs. Unfortunately, they're working for companies such as Walmart and others whose wages are so low and who don't uh, provide health care benefits. Uh, that they uh, have to re take uh, Medicaid as a result uh, of, of, of their situation. So uh, you're really punishing sort of their base of uh, people that um, are benefiting. It's Everyone thinks that it's just takers who are too lazy to work that are on Medicaid, but the majority of people have one or two jobs. Hmm. 
So uh, the uh, Democrats have welcomed this fight because they believe that they can win this political battle, um, given how you know how important healthcare is, uh, how much Americans value it. It's one of these things, of course, where once Americans have some uh, have a good government benefit, they usually want to keep it. Of course, Obamacare isn't exactly a government benefit, but it's a set of regulations on a private industry. Um, how does the leadership of the Democratic Party, as far as you know, plan on um, fighting back against this attack? And how does that impact the fight for Medicare for all and truly government program uh, to fund health care? Great question. So on the first example, one is that they have been saying they want to strengthen uh, the Affordable Care Act. And obviously, this is an assault uh, more so uh, than in the past because it's now in the courts. Um, but but as a result, Congress is sort of sitting on the sidelines right now waiting to see uh, what happens in the courts. Most legal experts predict that this will be, the existing Affordable Care Act will be upheld. Uh, and they actually look at uh, perhaps uh, Supreme Court Justice John Roberts as being the deciding vote, but they do believe that the Affordable Care Act will be um, upheld and this uh, Texas lawsuit will eventually uh, be dismissed once and for all. Uh, but Democrats are using this as a way to pivot away from looking at Medicare for all. Uh, prior to the announcement that the Trump administration was going to instruct its Justice Department to stand on the side of Texas, uh, you already had Speaker Pelosi saying that they were going to focus on more um, ACA-based um, uh, improvements. One was to perhaps increase the subsidy support. One was to also uh, write in regulation to overturn any pre-existing uh, condition uh, situation that was overturned. So that's where the Democrats have pivoted. Now, for those corporate Democrats who were never uh, going to support Medicare for all, this gives them a convenient excuse to focus on the attack at hand. Uh, but and I'm wondering if you think that's Trump's real goal. Because, of course, Medicare for all is something that he knows is popular and has right. desperately been trying to attack as a radical socialist plan, as have other Republicans. And is this a way to distract from the Medicare for all fight, which, uh, you know, potentially could be a winning a political battle for uh, Democrats like, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders? Well, he's now running as a Democrat, but usually an independent. Right. So, so it could be, uh, but I would say that if you look uh, to the news two days before the White House announcement, uh, you already saw uh, Speaker Pelosi saying that they were going to put Medicare for all on the back burner to focus on strengthening the Affordable Care Act. Uh, so I don't think that this was necessarily, uh, necessarily a deliberate attempt by the Trump administration to uh, remove Medicare for all from discussion. Uh, I, I, I think that most political uh, experts would say, given how healthcare was such a defining uh, issue in the midterms, that this is uh, somewhat um, uh, damaging for Republicans to now introduce this and have to uh, focus on healthcare uh, leading up to the presidential elections. Uh, but I, but I don't think that this is uh, the reason. And 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 I think. Democrats will gladly use this as an excuse to pivot away from Medicare for all in terms of those Democrats who are are much more uh, corporatist. 
but I don't think this was necessarily the the intent of the Trump administration. Now, uh, the Democratic leadership and Nancy Pelosi uh, have, have already tried to go on the offensive legislatively, right? They, they introduced a bill on Tuesday that would um, strengthen uh, protections for people with pre-existing conditions, but also lower premiums. I mean, that's one of, been one of the Achilles heels of the um, Affordable Care Act, which is that it uh, wasn't able to effectively keep premiums low enough and within reach of a majority of Americans who should have really benefited from having health care that didn't have health insurance before, right? Yes. And, and one of the things people should realize is even though it was called the Affordable Care Act, uh, the insurance industry and the pharmaceutical industry had such um, influence on the writing of this bill that there was no insurance rate regulation that was actually written into the bill or pharmaceutical drug pricing control. And those are the two areas that are coming back to really bite the American public and that are really uh, leaving an opening for Donald Trump to say the bill is flawed and um, falsely claim he's going to bring down prescription drug prices. And uh, people like you warned right from the start that, that the, the um, weaknesses of the Affordable Care Act would, of course, end up being its downfall. Uh, whereas if there had been a Medicare for All bill in place, it would have been much harder to dismantle it. Um, again, people, once they actually get used to having a real government benefit, usually will defend it. <laughs> so some of those same people who rely on Medicare once they hit 65, might have been attacking the Affordable Care Act or any attack on the insurance industry. How is the fight for Medicare for All going, though? Because that is so critical, right? You have a lot of um, Democratic presidential contenders for 2020 throwing their weight behind it in a pretty important shift in the debate. Um, we see the Democratic Party going leftward and um, something that we didn't imagine would be possible just even a year ago, we're now seeing Medicare for All become a mainstream talking point. Absolutely. And I think if you look back to uh, the presidential primary two years ago, or two and a half years ago, uh, you had people in the Democratic Party saying Medicare for all would never happen. And then prior to the midterms, you had President Obama saying he thought it was a good idea. You now have um, numerous co-sponsors of Senator Sanders' Medicare for all bill in the Senate and with Pramila Jayapal's uh, bill in the House. Uh, you have 107 co-signers. Um, you have a Medicare for all caucus. Uh, you have public support for Medicare for All at an all-time high. Uh, and if you look at the uh, sea change in public opinion um, of Medicare for All in the last five years, the only thing that it comes close to uh, mirroring is the same type of sea change that happened with uh, uh, marriage equality. Now, the, the big difference is that you didn't have uh, people uh, that were uh, buying off our uh, members of Congress uh, from the anti-marriage equality coalition, but you have a very powerful pharmaceutical industry and, um, and insurance industry. Uh, but but I, one thing I would say to the, uh, the Democratic leadership is fine, even if you do not support uh, Medicare for All, I think it's politically feasible, why not use that as your starting negotiating point? I always argued that if President Obama went into his last, uh, you know, in the, in the Affordable Care Act debate saying he wanted Medicare for All, he would have at least gotten what the Affordable Care Act plus a public option. But when you start um, 
with uh, lowered expectations, you, your negotiating point is not great. And now with potentially the repeal of the Affordable Care Act, it would be great if the Democrats really said, we want Medicare for all. I think that you uh, start with the, the greatest position and, and work your way back. But uh, many times we just try to settle right in the middle or nibble around the edges. Which, of course, does not work when you have rivals like the Republicans. <laughs> um, and, and that should have been a lesson that Democrats should have learned 10 years ago or more than 10 years ago in 2008. In fact, there were reports that earlier this week, President Obama at a private fundraiser um, you know, made statements cautioning some of the newer, more radical uh, members of the Democratic Party, newly elected members of the Democratic Party, of being mindful of the price tags of their bold visionary ideas like Medicare for all or the Green New Deal. Um, I mean, it seems as though, again, uh, you see these centrist Democrats. I mean, I don't know how much sway Obama continues to have within the Democratic Party leadership, but it seems as though there's still this stubborn centrist Democratic um, positioning that insists that you accept the Republican talking point of cost. Well, it's going to cost too much, um, you know, which is a red herring, isn't it? Absolutely. And and the thing about cost, right, we, I never hear us question cost for defense spending or um, subsidies to some of our allies. Uh, but when it comes to actually making sure that every single person has health care and we see health care as a human right, all of a sudden it's too costly. But the reality is that you have a Koch brother funded study, which is the Mercatus study that was done uh, at George Mason University that showed that the uh, Sanders bill would cost $32 trillion over 10 years. And everyone latched onto that price tag. But what it failed to realize in the same study is that compared to doing nothing, that if we just stayed the status quo, it would actually cost $34 trillion. So we would actually save money by instituting a single payer Medicare for all bill while insuring everyone. And yet everyone's so focused on cost, but they don't realize that if the cost of doing nothing, just like it comes with climate change and everything else, is going to be um, far more costly and expensive than if we implemented real uh, good solutions. And Medicare for all is a cost effective solution, not to mention that it is moral and just. So you have the centrist Democrats backing the Affordable Care Act, introducing a new bill to, to they say, strengthen it, although there's some progressives that have said they won't support that bill. Then you have those um, to the left of them who want Medicare for all. What is a Republican's plan? Because with the Justice Department um, saying that it wants to repeal the entire law, is anybody talking about a Republican plan for a replacement or do they really want to return to the free for all Wild West type situation that existed before 2008? Well, you have you have those that absolutely just want to do away with it and go back to the status quo. Basically, all of others. us being at the mercy of the free market. Right. Um, and we know there is no free market in healthcare. Um, and, and then the other option I've heard is to provide block grants to each individual state and allow them to innovate. And the problem with that is that um, block grants are far less money than the states receive right now. Uh, and particularly in times where there is an economic downturn, and at some point we will have one, uh, the block grant will not cover the, the new influx of people that will require health care because they have lost their jobs due to a recession. Um, but one thing I would say about the block grants, if indeed that's what happens, 
that will um, cost um, or at least cause certain states like California, which has one out of three people in its state on Medi-Cal to to have to innovate. And perhaps they'll realize the only way to save money while insuring everyone is to institute a state-based single-payer plan. But but uh, no one should be fooled that a block grant will be disastrous to most states that uh, uh, compared to the current healthcare systems they have. Why? No, you have. We haven't really had a chance to talk about this very much since Gavin Newsom became governor of California. What is California um, afraid of <laughs> when it comes to having a single payer bill in this state, a state level single payer bill? We know that with you know as the most populous state in the nation, California carries a huge level of clout, and there have just been uh, fits and starts for years on attempting to have a state level. Um, single-payer health care system in the state. Why is Newsom not putting his weight behind this? Well, uh, I, I will say this. Uh, I'm willing to give the governor uh, some benefit of the doubt. He just uh, was inaugurated in January. Um, one of the first things he did was he sent a letter uh, to uh, the federal agencies um, and the president asking for a waiver so that California could begin to implement its own single-payer plan. Um, he has said that he wants to uh, put together a commission specifically to focus on single-payer in our state. So I, I'm willing to give him some uh, leeway right now. Uh, we'll see what happens in the next year or so uh, with regard to uh, what actions uh, match the rhetoric. But but the, the big reality here in the state of California is despite the fact that we have a supermajority of Democrats in both houses and a Democratic uh, governor, that we do have a uh, entrenched uh, corporate wing of our Democratic Party that is too beholden to Kaiser, to um, pharmaceutical companies, uh, to um, uh, special interest groups that would like to maintain the status quo. And as a result, we were not able to find one single legislator this session in Sacramento that was willing to carry a single-payer bill. Not uh, a one? <laughs> not one. Despite the um, heroic attempts by the California nurses to um, identify one, uh, we not we did not have one. So for all the talk of California being so progressive and out front, uh, certainly we uh, are searching for people like that in our legislature. And am I remembering this wrong? Uh, but uh, d- didn't under a, ca- a Democratic-controlled legislature, but a Republican governor, which was Schwarzenegger, didn't the state pass um, Medicare or single-payer health care a couple of times and, you know, sort of knowing that it would be vetoed? Passed twice, um, only to be vetoed twice by uh, then-Governor uh, Schwarzenegger. But a lot of people argue that a lot of the corporate Dems knew that Senator Schwarzenegger, I mean, uh, Governor Schwarzenegger was going to veto it so they could vote for something with a wink and a nod, knowing that it would never become mm-hmm. law. Because once we did get a Democratic governor, uh, right. no such bill was ever introduced, and the same people uh, avoided voting for it. Well, that is a tragedy indeed, and uh, it remains to be seen how California reacts to any attempts uh, at the federal level and what uh, the newly seated Governor Newsom's approach will be. Paul, always a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much for joining us. 
Thanks for having me on. Paul Song is a board-certified radiation oncologist, co-chair of the Campaign for Healthy California, and a board member of Physicians for a National Health Program, and also our healthcare correspondent. We've been discussing the Trump administration's about-face on Obamacare, and now deciding to overturn or trying to overturn the entire law. I'm Sonali Kolhetkar. We're online at risingupwithsonali.com, where you can sign up for our daily newsletter. Also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at RUWithSonali. From KPFK Pacifica Radio, this is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on Pacifica Radio stations and affiliates nationwide. A new study on the effectiveness of a labeling law in California has found that such regulations actually work. Anybody living in California has likely noticed Proposition 65 warning labels. They're seen inside parking garages and even on coffee beans and are the result of a ballot initiative that passed in 1986, requiring that companies put warning labels on products that could contain significant amounts of chemicals known to cause cancer. The study published this week in the Journal for Environmental Health found that hazardous lead content found in chili and tamarind candies, as well as in faux leather purses, declined significantly over several years. Both those types of products were known to have had high lead contamination. My guest is Caroline Cox, senior scientist with the Center for Environmental Health. She leads the CEH's research on toxic exposure, and she was the co-author of the lead study uh, that was just published. Welcome, Caroline. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for joining us. So first, let's talk about what it was that Proposition 65 actually required. I mentioned it passed in 1986. It was very popular, passed by large margin. What, um, at this point, constitutes a requirement to put a label on? If, you, if you're a manufacturer, um, under what circumstances are you required to put on a warning label? Um, so uh, what happens with uh, Prop 65 is that um, there's a state agency with kind of a tongue twister of a name, um, the Office of Environmental Health Hazard and Assessment, whose job it is to implement the law. And um, one of the things they do is um, decide uh, what chemicals um, will be uh, part of the uh, Prop 65 uh, chemical list. Um, those are chemicals known to the state of California to cause cancer or reproductive harm. Some chemicals have been on the Prop 65 list since, you know, soon after the law was passed. 
Others have been added more recently. Um, lead, because we know so much about its toxicity and the problems that it causes both for children and adults. Um, it's been on the Prop 65 list for a long time. And so what happens uh, when there's a chemical on the Prop 65 list is um, the law requires that um, if um, a product will expose people to a significant amount of that chemical, then the manufacturer must provide a warning before people are exposed. Uh, so there's basically there's two ways to comply with Prop 65. You know, if you're a manufacturer of a product that's being sold in California um, that contains uh, one of the chemicals on the list, um, one way you can comply is by um, putting a warning. The other way you can comply is by removing that toxic chemical from the product. Right. It seems and, like it, it, this is a very innovative approach to regulating chemicals that you give these corporate, the manufacturers and uh, a way to actually fix the problem or deal with a label. Because, of course, the complaint, whenever you try to regulate companies is, well, it's going to cost too much. Well, then you can just put a label on it. And I, I'm guessing that what some of these candy manufacturers found that had been found to have high lead content is that putting a label saying that your product could cause cancer results in slightly slower sales, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, that's certainly the idea. And um, I've spoken with some of the people who were involved, you know, back in 1986 in um, the, you know, the passage of the ballot initiative. And um, they told me that um, they never expected that anybody would want to put a warning on a product or even a parking garage, you know. Um, they completely expected that manufacturers um, would, uh, you know, change the way they make their products in order to comply. And in fact, even though we do see a lot of warnings in California, um, we um, a lot of companies have chosen to comply by um, essentially eliminating uh, the toxic chemical at issue. Um, and that's what we've seen with lead in these uh, two particular product categories. Right. So let's the, talk about that. This is the study. The study didn't, of course, um, I understand, look at every single product that we know to be contaminated with every single kind of chemical. It picked a, a narrow set of products and one chemical, right? Right. So um, there are very few products um, or chemicals for which, you know, we actually have like um, a long-term data set so we can look at, you know, what's happened over time um, as a, um, following uh, Prop 65 litigation. Um, it does happen in case of these uh, chili and tamarind candies and in the case of the full leather purses that we do have that kind of long-term data set. So we were able to say, you know, what was it like when the litigation started? And then what did we see in the years um, following the litigation? I mean, why why was there lead in chili and tamarind candies to begin with? You know, this is just so strange. I understand that there was a, an Orange County Re Register article that, that uh, years ago that found that these uh, candies, many of them imported from Mexico, had just unacceptable levels of lead that, you know, consumed by children. Yeah, it's, it's certainly not something that I think um, people expect when they buy candy. Um, 
But um, what happened uh, during the course of the litigation is um, there were what's called audits, um, where experts went and um, looked at the candy manufacturing plants and the places where the ingredients for the candy were grown and tried to answer you know, that exact question, where is the lead coming from? And what they found was that you know, there wasn't a simple answer like most things, um, life is complicated, but um, one source of lead is just that because of there was so much lead used in the past, in um, gasoline, um, there is lead just dispersed all over the environment and especially along roadsides. And sometimes um, this lead would blow onto the chili peppers in the field where they were growing. And um, if the chili peppers weren't washed before they were dried, then that lead dust would you know, end up in the chili peppers. And of course, um, we know that lead is an extremely toxic chemical. So when this law was passed in 1986, so it's just been decades, aside from this one study that was just published that showed in very clear terms that uh, you see these um, the content reducing over several years, um, what are the other impacts that it had? Did, did Prop 65 passing in one state in the country have a ripple effect politically and even at the, around the U.S., but also even at the federal level? Yeah, so, I mean, what we've seen is that um, California is a big state with a big economy. We purchase a lot of products, but in, in most cases, a company doesn't want to make a special product just for California. So when they um, go to the effort to change the way they make the product to remove a toxic chemical, they'll do that for all the products they make, the ones that are sold in California and the ones that are sold elsewhere. So we have definitely seen uh, you know, a ripple effect um, from California through the rest of the country. I understand that uh, in uh, 2008, uh, President Bush signed the Consumer Product Safety Improvement Act. Uh, that, in part, was the result of your organization's uh, Center for Environmental Health's uh, litigation on a number of cases around Prop 65 requirements, right? Right. So um, anybody who remembers... Um, back to 2007, um, you remember that there was a huge amount of publicity because um, there were some, you know, famous popular toys that were found to have um, lead-containing paint on them. And um, people just got, you know, really upset. You don't want to buy a birthday present for your child and find out that it actually is um, exposing them to lead. And so, there was kind of a bipartisan effort to um, say, let's, you know, let's take care of this problem. And so the law was passed, set really strict limits for um, lead in children's products. And while the law was being passed, um, uh, we worked on Prop 65 litigation um, in collaboration with the California Attorney General. Um, about some of these toys that were found with lead problems. So um, that just gave it sort of an added incentive for um, the manufacturers to support 
the bill. So uh, it seems as though we see over all of these years that Prop 65 has been in place just as one law in one state that it actually works, right, Caroline? When you regulate companies, basically forcing them by law to have safer products, eventually they comply. And now we have a... A uh, president uh, who's, um, you know, who seems hell bent on undoing regulations at the federal level that are protecting consumers. How, you know, shouldn't shouldn't this study and all the other results from Prop 65 be a very clear um, showcase for how regulation actually works to protect public safety? Um, you know, we would certainly hope that would be the case. And I think um, the um, original um, authors of the ballot initiative um, were, you know, a bit cynical. They said, you know, we really need to deal with toxic chemical exposures and we need to be able to sort of take it into our own hands because government has, you know, kind of let us down. Um, and I would say that, you know, in, in the current administration, there's, you know, even more uh, sentiment that way. And um, what is happening is that um, uh, there are some uh, parts of the indus industry associations that are taking advantage of the political climate to try to pass uh, federal law that um, would essentially um, eliminate state laws like Proposition 65. Mm. Um, so we're really hoping to protect the right of states to pass these kind of laws and um, act as uh, um, you know nimble, um, health-protecting states. I understand that uh, there's a, a bill that was introduced last year, the Accurate Labels Act, that uh, refers, I think, to what you were just suggesting, that that would essentially, um, unlike what its name is suggesting, <laughs> would actually block the ability of states like California to have laws like Prop 65? Correct. And that bill um, we've heard may... Um, come back again in this session of Congress. So we're working really hard to try to, you know, put the brakes on it. Hmm. Uh, and it would impact not just Prop 65, but many of the other um, states in the country that have passed um, various kinds of labeling or warning laws. Now, uh, uh, Prop 65 went pretty far in requiring these labels or essentially, you know, forcing manufacturers to remove the chemicals. But what more needs to be done? Because, you know, we still have um, toxic chemicals in products that uh, are that consumers use, that children use. I mean, it was only recently, right, in California that uh, flame retardant chemicals were uh, were basically made illegal. I mean, this is it's not that Prop sixty five solved everything, right? I, I don't think there's ever a silver bullet. Um, the The issue of toxic chemical exposures is really complicated, and it's going to take. Um, you know, multiple uh, ways of um, finding solutions. Uh, but um, I do think that it's 
made a significant contribution. I mean, we just also recently saw the uh, $80 million settlement in San Francisco uh, when a um, man who has non-Hodgkin's lymphoma after using Roundup Ready by Monsanto for years uh, was essentially, you know, jury found in his favor. And, and Monsanto has been attempting to avoid for years making the links between pesticide exposure and cancer. Uh, so those struggles are quite real and it's quite difficult to fight these uh, battles in, in court and also legislatively. So if uh, you do have uh, California's Prop 65 showing in in studies like the one you just co-authored that regulations actually work, could there could those studies be the basis of legal defenses against federal encroachments like the Accurate Labels Act? I mean, couldn't you show through a study like this that it actually works? Um, I think so, yes. Uh, you know, I'm not an attorney and I can't speak to the legal aspects of it, but it's certainly helpful, you know, when you have a bill going through Congress to have, um, you know, relatively clear and long-term data sets that show the success of the law. Now, we talked about the tamarind and chili candy, but we didn't get to talk about the faux leather purses uh, in the study that you authored. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Why was there lead contamination and how much did it drop as far as you can tell? Yeah. So um, I think um, folks have probably seen the brightly colored faux leather, leather uh, purses that have been popular for a while. Um, and. Um, it turns out that in, in the past, um, many of those brightly colored pigments that were used to make those purses were lead-based pig pigments. And so what we did was use Prop 65 and litigation to get the um, fashion companies to switch to pigments that did not contain lead. So it wasn't that these companies just did it on their own. This was the result of actual uh, pushing. And then through testing, you found that they did indeed reduce their lead, um, the lead exposure in those purses. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, these sorts of chemicals, of course, are so insidious because they're invisible. Do you think that the public has knows enough about the success of Prop 65? I mean, it seems as though sometimes we might become immune to those labels that we see all around us. Oh, you know, what are we going to do? Not go into the parking garage that has that label on it or try to avoid it actively. Um, and so it feels as though we, we kind of take for granted that these labels are there and may not really understand that those, that that law requiring those labels have actually worked. Do you think that there's been not enough publicity, not enough media coverage? Uh, I, I definitely think that's true. So, you know, people see the, the warnings, you know, like on the um, parking garages or at their favorite uh, coffee place. Um, what, they, what they don't see is all the companies that have taken health protective action to remove toxic chemicals from their products. And so, um, you know, uh, so we're all exposed to fewer toxic chemicals, but it's invisible. You can't see it the way that you can see a warning. Um, and so that's another reason why, you know, I was really pleased to be able to publish this study because at least, it, you know, in a small way, it demonstrates um, that uh, what you can't see um, is actually, you know, really good news.
Right. And uh, and unfortunately, of course, the chemicals themselves are also uh, invisible. And so before those labels, we couldn't see the chemicals that were impacting us. But uh, maybe there is even a uh, some sort of benefit to seeing those warning labels around us to make us think about the fact that all around us are chemicals that are often toxic that we don't think about and that companies sort of knowingly put into their products. I understand that one of the results of Prop 65 uh, that we didn't get to uh, talk about yet is um, the colorant used in popular sodas made, you know, basically colas by Pepsi and Coke. Uh, Right. Uh, So um, the uh, most colas contain um, caramel coloring to give it that nice brown color that people have, you know, associated with Coke and Pepsi and other cola drinks. Um, Unfortunately, um, in the past, um, that caramel coloring was uh, contaminated with um, a real uh, tongue twister of a chemical, um, (laughs) methyl imidazole, um, and that is a chemical that causes cancer. Um, and so it was added to the Proposition 65 list. And what happened is that both Coke and Pepsi, Pepsi um, was you know a bit of a laggard, but um, compared to Coke, they, they both um, worked with their caramel coloring suppliers to change uh, the caramel coloring so that it wasn't contaminated um, and, um, and thus avoided putting any warnings on Coke and Pepsi. So again, the the success of the law is invisible, um, but um, it's there. Today, there's a lot less um, methyl imidazole in uh, colas than there was um, prior to it being added to the Prop 65 list. And that's just a good thing. Um, I'm not recommending that everybody drink a lot of colas (laughs) because Um, you know, there's a lot of reasons right. they may not be good for you, but um, at least this one chemical, um, uh, it shouldn't be a problem anymore. So are there uh, further studies that you uh, are hoping to do to continue to see if Proposition 65 is working beyond this lead study? Uh, because there's, of course, a very large list of chemicals that Prop 65 uh, requires be be labeled um, and, and sh- ensuring that the that there's continued compliance? Yeah, there's a couple of University of California researchers who are working on a, um, a, a large project evaluating the success of Prop 65. And I think, you know, it's still a year or two away from being finished, but um, that's going to be a great uh, um, uh, collection of information when it comes out. And how can people support your organization and also find out more about the work that the Center for Environmental Health does? Um, Well, I invite anybody um, who's interested to um, visit our website, uh, which is ceh.org. When you go to our website, you can read a lot about what we're doing. You can sign up to be on our email list. Um, You can uh, sign up to um, you know, follow us on Facebook or Twitter. Um, and you can also make a donation if you want. Um, so yeah, encourage everyone to check out the website.
Right, because uh, your organization is uh, has been instrumental in helping uh, the Proposition 65 uh, legal cases and the studies move forward. So thank you so much for joining us, uh, Caroline, and good luck with uh, all the work that you're doing. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. My guest has been Caroline Cox, senior scientist with the Center for Environmental Health. She leads the CEH's research on toxic exposure, and she co-authored the uh, lead study published in the Journal for Environmental Health this week, showing the success of Proposition 65. I'm Sonali Kohatkar. We're online at risingupwithsonali.com, where you can sign up for our daily newsletter, subscribe to our audio podcast on iTunes, and our video channel on Vimeo. <laughs> Rising Up with Sonali is hosted, written, and executive produced by Sonali Kohatka. Anna Bus is the producer, technical director, and web and social media supervisor. Our theme music is by Grammy award-winning band Ketsam. Like us on facebook.com slash Sonali. That's the letters RU with Sonali. And follow us on twitter.com slash Sonali. Our website is risingupwithsonali.com where you can find all our programs archived and where you can get direct access to all our video and audio files. KBOO Portland. Up next, The Struggle with Alyssa. KBOO Community Radio is a proud co-sponsor of the Urban League of Portland Career Connections Job Fair on Tuesday, April 2nd at 10 a.m. at the Lloyd Center Mall in Portland. The Urban League of Portland Career Connections Job Fair features government, nonprofit, and private sector employers from around the Pacific Northwest who are looking for employees. Again, that's the Urban League Career Connections Job Fair on Tuesday, April 2nd from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. at the Lloyd Center Mall in Portland. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. <laughs>